to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 49 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope this conversation inspires you to take deliberate action to help you feel, function, and relate better. To learn how I can help you and your organization thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with Dr. Anna Limke. Dr. Limke is a professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Stanford University and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is a recipient of numerous awards for outstanding research into mental illness, for excellence in teaching, and for clinical innovation in treatment. You may know Dr. Limke from her appearance on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, explaining that social media is a drug which exploits the brain's evolutionary need for interpersonal connection. In her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, Dr. Limke explores the exciting new scientific discoveries that explain why the relentless pursuit of pleasure leads to pain. Condensing complex neuroscience into easy-to-understand metaphors, Dr. Limke illustrates how finding contentment and connectedness means keeping dopamine in check. The lived experiences of her patients are the gripping fabric of her narrative. Their riveting stories of suffering and redemption give us all hope for managing our consumption and transforming our lives. In this episode, we discuss the pleasure-pain balance, how dopamine impacts the way we think, feel, and act, the importance of inviting pain and discomfort into our lives, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anna Limke. Anna, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because there's so much we can learn about human nature and our tendencies to indulge through this conversation. But before we get into that, I'd love to understand your story of how you became a professor of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Stanford University. What's your story? Well, I came to Stanford for medical school. And when I first went into medical school, I really didn't have much of an idea about what area of medicine I wanted to practice, but eventually landed on psychiatry because I was very interested in improving not just quantity of life, but also quality of life. And I was interested in having long-term relationships with my patients through time. And psychiatry was sort of the last bastion in a way where you could still, you know, take some time with patients, keep them for months to years. And that really appealed to me. I will admit that when I first went into psychiatry, I was neither trained nor interested in treating addiction. It was not something I had learned about in medical school. It was not something that I or others in medicine really considered to be a mental illness or a brain disease. It was really considered a social problem or a personality problem, spiritual problem, will, willpower problem, lots of different ways to think about it, but not as a medical problem. But what I realized pretty quickly was that I, I was actually not a very good psychiatrist because I was willfully ignoring problems related to compulsive overconsumption, drugs, alcohol. And in fact, I had a, a, a very bad outcome with a patient of mine who was in a near-death car accident because she had been using heroin and I had not once asked her about drug and alcohol use. So I had no idea 
that she was a heroin user, much less that she was addicted to heroin and had relapsed. So it was that realization that this kind of don't ask, don't tell policy that was operating in my clinical office and many other psychiatrists' office was really harming people because it's not our patient's job to tell us that they are struggling with an addiction. It's our job to elicit that information, especially that kind of shame-based information. So I started to ask my patients about drugs and alcohol, and it opened up a whole world. I learned a ton from my patients, both about addiction and about how to get into recovery. And I discovered that when I focused on that problem, my patients were eager to talk about it. And once we were talking about it, eager to do something about it, and that patients can really get into recovery, and the recovery is remarkable. There's a lot of hope. I thought previously that you know, once addicted, always addicted, but it turns out recovery is real. It happens for millions of people across the planet. It changes their lives. It changes the lives of the people around them. And it's really joyful and rewarding work. And that just highlights everything that I read in the book about your story and what you've learned over the years. And what really stood out for me as a reader was your high regard for your clients. You just look at these clients as, wow, look how far you have come and knowing that everybody has a shot at recovery. I'll tell you, I probably pause at least a couple of times a month and think about the incredible courage that it takes to get into recovery from a severe addiction. And I am so humbled when I think about it because I'm not sure I could do it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it is really a very, very tall mountain to climb. And people who manage to do that I'm I'm genuinely in awe of them. They really are heroes. And they have so much to teach us. Yes. How can we function in this world that's really making it challenging for all of us because there's so much abundance. And you set out in the book that earlier we evolved in a world of scarcity. There wasn't so much everywhere. You had to work for what you've got. And now there's just this abundance. So that's why I love the title of your book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in an Age of Indulgence. And how can we do this? Because as I was reading your book, I loved your definition of addiction. I'll just read it here. It's broadly defined in the continued and compulsive consumption of a substance or behavior despite its harm to self or others. And as soon as I read that definition, I thought, oh, I'm addicted to so many things because there are so many (laughs) things that I do continued, compulsive, and it's harm. You know, first thing I think of is sugar. You know, for me, walking past a cafe, seeing that beautiful cabinet with glass and seeing all the options, like I can feel my whole body just get excited with the anticipation of what's possible. And I think this is what this conversation's about, is that we all have our own things. We all have our things that we lead to or the guilty pleasures, pick your poison, whatever the thing is, and how can we understand it? So to understand it, could you help us get a grasp of dopamine and how it works? Sure. So let me just start by saying if you're not addicted yet, it's coming soon to a website near you and that this really is the point of the title Dopamine Nation, that it's not that something's wrong with our brains. It's that there's a fundamental mismatch between our ancient wiring evolved for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger and the world that we live in now in which nearly every human activity has become drugified in some way. And to understand how this works, it's important to understand some of the basic neuroscience of pleasure and pain and dopamine. So one of the exciting discoveries 
in neuroscience in the past 100 years is that dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the human brain. This was discovered in the 1950s. And since then, there's been an explosion of research around dopamine and the understanding that dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's most important to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. Now, it's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing drugs and behaviors. So whether your drug works through our endogenous opioid system or the endogenous cannabinoid system or serotonin or norepinephrine, at the end of that cycle or circuit, it all pings dopamine release in this very specific pathway called the reward circuit. Interestingly, dopamine is also essential for movement. We know that it's the depletion of dopamine in a part of the brain called the substantia nigra that leads to Parkinson's disease, which is a movement disorder disease. And it's very likely not coincidental that the same neurotransmitter that's essential for movement is also essential for pleasure, reward, and motivation. Because for most living organisms, if you want to get your reward, you have to move to get it. Now, that's another problem that we face today. We don't have to get off the couch anymore, right? A couple of swipes and you know, a PayPal account and it's delivered to our doorstep, which is part of what's exacerbating the problem. Also important to keep in mind that dopamine may be even more important for motivation than it is for reward, for pleasure that is, because there's a very important study where they engineered rats to have no dopamine receptors in that reward pathway. And they discovered when they put food in that rat's mouth, it would eat the food and seem to get some gustatory pleasure from the food. But when they put the food a body length away, the rat would not get up to go get the food and in some cases starve to death. So that tells us that dopamine is important for pleasure, but it's possibly even more important for the motivation to do the work to go and get the reward. So it's helping us to seek pleasure, to seek something, to anticipate something, to want that hit. Is that right? It's both that and the experience of the euphoria or the high itself. So we're always firing dopamine at a baseline level. And anytime that firing increases above baseline, we experience a high pleasure motivation. It's reinforcing. And that's the signal to our brain. Oh, that's something I want to get more of. Oh, that's something that I need to do again. Now, in a world of scarcity, you know, that makes a lot of sense, right? I would really want to have imprinted on my brain where I found that oasis and exactly how I managed to get there. And I want to repeat that experience or I am going to die. The problem is that now we have through technology and innovation and improved supply chain and the internet, the ability to access these highly reinforcing drugs in all kinds of guises all at once, releasing way more dopamine than our brains are evolved for, leading then to our brain trying to accommodate the increased dopamine by actually down-regulating endogenous or innate production of dopamine and involuting or taking in dopamine receptors, such that the result is that after this sudden increase in dopamine, we actually go into dopamine freefall and end up in this dopamine deficit state. And that dopamine deficit state with enough exposure to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors can become a chronic state. In other words, we essentially can recalibrate our pleasure pain set point so that now we need a ton of pleasure just to feel normal 
And we're, when we're not constantly ingesting these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, we're in this dopamine deficit state experiencing withdrawal, craving, anxiety, depression, inattention, etc. So the old saying, what goes up must come down, rings true here? Yes. And it's a really important one that there's an actual, literal, physiologic cost to any pleasure. And that the way that our brain reasserts homeostasis or baseline dopamine firing levels is not just to bring them dopamine firing levels after after the, there's an increase and not just decrease it back down to the level place, but actually to go below baseline such that we're in a mini dopamine deficit state before going back to baseline conditions. So you get kind of like an S curve type shape. And with repeated exposure to uh, reinforcing drugs and behaviors, that initial upward deviation of dopamine gets less and less over time, but that downward deflection below baseline gets longer and stronger. And eventually we have like a new baseline where we've essentially reset our dopamine firing to this lower level. And that's that's the state I think many of us are in now that are kind of, first of all, what, what is fascinating is that if you look at the last 50 to 75 years, there's been a steady increase in anxiety, depression, suicide. And that clearly correlates with how wealthy nations are. So the richer countries get as the graph goes upward and to the right in terms of wealth, it goes downward into the right in terms of happiness and well-being. And I think those things are not just correlated, but actually causative. That in fact, it is this overabundance that is mismatched with our dopamine, you know, uh, ancient dopamine firing that has led us to be in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state, both as individuals and as nations. It's so true that once we experience a pleasure of something, then we want more and then we want more. It's like we need an increased dose and potency over time and we don't really notice it However, it's just creeping more and more and more. And then once you look back over the journey, you think, gosh, six months ago or 12 months ago, I would have been satisfied with this, but I'm not satisfied anymore. And then the interesting point around in that deficit state, our intolerance of that discomfort, that almost leads us to seek more. So it sounds like a bit of a vicious cycle at times. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like the theory of relativity of pleasure and pain. And we do know that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain and work like opposite sides of a balance. And there are certain rules governing this balance. And one is that the balance wants to remain level, doesn't want to be deviated for very long to the side of pleasure or pain, which from an evolutionary perspective makes a lot of sense, right? You want a supple, responsive pleasure-pain balance that can easily respond to any change in the environment, a lion chasing you, you know, a berry bush that has some yummy fruit on it. You want to have ready ability to respond to those environmental cues and those environmental changes in order to survive. But what happens is that the main rule governing that balance is that it wants to preserve homeostasis. So if with any deviation from neutrality to pleasure or pain, our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance, and they do that by tilting first an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So when we do something pleasurable, the way that our brain adapts is first by tilting equal and opposite amount to pain, the come down, the hangover, the after effect. This is called neuroadaptation, and I like to imagine this as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount 
to the side of pain. Now, if we wait, those gremlins hop off and homeostasis is restored. We can kind of go on with our day. But obviously, there's a natural tendency when we're in that pain state to want to reach for our drug again in order to recreate the positive effects or at least get out of the deficit state. And so when we're exposed to lots of different drugs in many different guises, and we can continue to try to counteract those gremlins over time, and this is the second rule of the balance, we just accumulate enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. And now we have effectively changed our pleasure pain set point. They are camped out there. Now we need a whole lot of pleasure just to feel normal and level the balance. And when we're not using, we're experiencing these universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, inattention, and craving. So you're absolutely right. It's like this relativity thing that goes on. And when we're living in a world where we're bombarded with hits of dopamine, we very quickly recalibrate because our brain has evolved over millions of years to do that, to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain such that now we need a whole lot of pleasure to feel anything at all. It's positive and we very mere slights, you know, feel painful to us. It's really interesting that you mentioned this. And I saw this show in a lot of your stories that people seem to have all the comforts. They have a good education. They've got a good job. So on paper, everything looks really good. And yet they're in your office saying that they're not experiencing pleasure. They need to have more and more of a drug. And from reading your book, I notice now that drugs and behaviors can be so varied. It's not just limited to alcohol and gambling and sugar. There's so much. It could be our emails. It could be our need to gossip and drama and intensity around our narrative. There are so many things that we're compelled to do that cause us harm and other people harm. And so highlighting that just because you've got everything doesn't mean you're not vulnerable to really severe addiction. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I'm seeing more and more young people over the past two decades who have all of the privilege you could imagine. They have kind and loving parents. They have a supportive social network. They have privileged uh, elite education. They're financially stable or even then some. And yet they're finding that they're inexplicably depressed, anxious, unable to motivate. And yes, you could conceptualize that as, oh, they have the biological disease of depression or anxiety, or maybe they've experienced trauma. But in many instances, there isn't really significant trauma or any trauma at all. And really, the problem is this problem of overabundance and the fact that they are spending all day long on their computer playing video games or on social media or looking at pornography They're never expected to challenge themselves in any way, physically or otherwise. Parents swoop in and protect them from, you know, any kinds of psychological challenges or failures or disappointments, understandably, because that's how parents have been socialized to be good parents in our generation, is to kind of make sure our kid doesn't end up with some kind of trauma, you know, that puts them on the psychotherapist's couch in the future. But the truth is that by depriving our children of some degree of adversity, We're also depriving them the opportunity to build up the mental calluses that they need to, you know, have a more resilient and robust pleasure pain balance so that, you know, they can withstand challenges that they encounter in life and they can actually take joy in modest, simple pleasures, which a lot of uh, people, you know, have lost the ability to do that. 
so many people talk to me about how everyday life just feels so boring and almost intolerable at the moment. So the idea of doing, you know, the reports or doing the washing or doing the folding, just the everyday tasks, it just feels almost painful, intolerable because we're so used to everything being fast, quick. I was just laughing with my husband last night and we were talking about the videos we used to watch at school and the videos we used to watch at school in science were so boring. You know, they'd go for at least 40 minutes, monotone, and you would get through it. And then I was saying, if I was to show that to a student now, they would not be able to tolerate at least two, three minutes of it. So are you noticing that in your work, just how itchy we're becoming with everyday life? Absolutely. I mean, there's been this massive cognitive and emotional recalibration in the modern brain, precisely because of the ways in which we're insulated from physical and emotional pain, the way we're constantly bombarding our reward pathway with these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And I really like to emphasize that it's physiological. So it's not that, you know, people today are lazier or more morally compromised. I mean, you you could look at it through that lens, but I really like to look at it through the biology of it, you know, and that really this is the biological, the natural biological sequelae of living in a world where you have everything you ever needed and much, much more. Because I think that also then helps us understand what to do about it. Because the what to do about it really means that we need to intentionally eschew or avoid too many intoxicants that come even in the form of our smartphone, and also intentionally invite pain, challenge, and discomfort into our lives. So kind of reorienting on a new form of asceticism as we think about how to navigate the modern ecosystem. And also as we're thinking about how to raise children and how to parent children, that in fact, we are doing our children a favor if we are exposing them in mild to moderate, that is to say, tolerable doses of physical and mental discomfort. Yes. I know for myself, since reading your book, I've been just noticing throughout the day activities And when I get the pleasure, is it the pleasure straight up or am I getting the pleasure afterwards? And then noticing again what the difference is in that sense of pleasure. So, for example, when I put the kettle on and I have a muffin, there's no effort required. Um, That feels pleasurable in the moment. But then I do feel that tip, like the gremlins jumping on and dropping down. And also, I ocean water swim And here at the moment, it is really cold. The ocean is freezing. And as we walk in every time, we're saying, what are we doing this for? This is so cold. This is painful. This is so uncomfortable. And you dive into the water and you just get a shock through your body. And then I'm telling myself, oh, I probably don't need to swim with my head in the water today. Probably I'll just do, (laughs) I'll just do like water polo. And so there I'm having this debate with myself, like, come on, put your head in the water, put your head in the water. It'll pass. It'll pass. And then eventually I get swimming and I'm in the water. But when I come out, the high and the euphoria is just next level. It is so much more than that muffin because I have worked for it. And it feels like it lasts longer throughout the day. Is that just a me thing or is that a real thing? No, I think that's absolutely real. So what what you're talking about is the science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And there's a whole branch of science showing that if you expose a living organism to mild to moderate doses of a toxic stimulus, like ice cold freezing water, 
that actually that will then promote the upregulation of feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine. So if you go back to the balance, the pleasure-pain balance with the gremlins, remember when we press on the pleasure side with an intoxicant, those gremlins will hop on the pain side and with repeated pleasures will end up resetting or recalibrating our balance to the side of pain. But the opposite is also true. So if we intentionally invite painful activities like ice cold water into our lives, those gremlins will hop on the pleasure side and we will eventually recalibrate our brain to the side of pleasure. So that means we are paying for our dopamine up front. And when we do that, it's much, much better because we don't go into that dopamine deficit state and we probably get more dopamine. So for example, if you look at studies of people exposing themselves to ice cold water baths, what you see is that Initially, there's no dopamine, it's just pain. But gradually over the course of the ice cold water bath, there's a slow increase in dopamine levels in the brain. And those dopamine levels remain elevated for hours afterwards before coming back down to baseline levels of dopamine. So there's never this dopamine deficit state. Now compare that to an intoxicant where you get a sudden spike of dopamine followed almost immediately, here's your muffin, by dopamine free fall not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels. That's that dopamine deficit state, that come down, that craving. And the problem with that is that's a very, very strong driver to want to repeat use of that intoxicant. So no sooner have you finished one muffin then you are angling to find a reason why you can really have another one. That doesn't happen when you jump in the ocean, right? That doesn't happen. You don't jump in the ocean, come out, feel high, and then be like, I want to do that again, or at least it doesn't typically happen, right? Because of the the cognitive load to do the painful thing is enormous. We're also, we have this very keen memory for the, the stimulus, the initial stimulus, whether pleasure or pain, but we're almost amnestic for the gremlins. And that's true on both sides, right? So like I eat that muffin and if I just could think back to the day before when I ate the muffin and then afterwards I had a sugar crash and then I wanted another muffin, I would never want to eat a muffin again. But I don't remember that. All I remember is the pleasure of the muffin. Likewise, just before you're about to jump in the ocean, it's amazing how difficult it is to access the memory of the last time you jumped in the ocean, how good you felt afterwards. It's like you really can't remember that, but you make yourself do it anyway, and then afterwards you feel great. So it's very fascinating how our memory really makes it very difficult for us to remember that for every pleasure we pay a price, and that price is pain. And for every pain, most of the time we get a reward and that reward is pleasure. And that's part of why having these cultural narratives about the meaning of pleasure and pain becomes so important because these narratives can sort of function as an extended hippocampus reminding us of the gremlins and and what really happens. Well, that rings true with what I've been working with in schools and organizations, all about their well-being action plan as individuals. And the motto is, it's worth the effort there is always, always going to be resistance. There's always going to be excuses, always going to be reasons why we're not going to move towards that discomfort of putting our runners on or shutting our laptop, whatever it is for us that's hard to do, but it is worth the effort. We get that joy on the other side. That's right. And I even heard from my niece, which I thought was great. She came back from summer camp and she told me about having to lift these heavy canoes to portage from one body of water to the other. And I said, well, that sounds really hard. That doesn't sound like any fun. And she said, oh no, it's type B fun. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, type A fun is when it's fun right away. She said, but type B fun is when it's fun after. And I thought, oh, that's great. 
they're talking about that in this way, you know, in summer camp, which is exactly what we need to do. And we need to really talk to kids about how doing something, things that are hard and tolerating painful or difficult experiences, it makes that brain a muscle, you know, because the brain is muscle. It makes it makes us stronger. It's not something that necessarily, you know, sets us up for future pain. It's something that actually makes us stronger. It's something that, you know, it's so cliched, like what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And yet we've, we've largely lost, you know, discussions around that. Also the ways in which incremental effort over a long period of time can lead to a really amazing outcome or, you know, a significant reward, but you have to wait for it. You have to be patient. These are the types of, you know, discussions we need to have with our kids. And they're uncomfortable because we live in this world of indulgence where there is so much access. I could put on Netflix, Stan, there are so many things I could put on, and yet we're trying to really limit things so they don't get that experience of constantly feeling the high of dopamine. And then the way that streaming services are, like then there's another one, and then there's another one. And then, of course, young children and us, we have this real dip once we have to turn it off. I was saying to my husband last night, you know, the way that we set things up, we're setting things up that they're not going to be able to enjoy the everyday pleasures if they're constantly getting served up things that are just so heightened. I was talking to a kindergarten teacher just recently and she said, what we used to do in kinder 10, 20 years ago with glue and scissors and cutting and colours, it's really hard to get that engagement now because I've had so much more exposure to things that are so much more exciting and they're only five and six years old. Oh, I know. It's it's across the board in education, I can tell you, as somebody who lectures, you know, Stanford medical students. I mean, I would almost have to do, you know, five back flips and a pirouette to be able to get anybody to just show up and not be in their pajamas from home. I mean, it's just it the whole thing has been exploded when they can, you know, watch me later on double time while they're sipping latte and also texting their friends. Like they're like, I know, you know, even the most engaging a lecturer is not going to be able to compete with that. I mean, that that's really the reality. We've got these recalibrated brains. And I think it's worth pointing out too, that, you know, to fight against this in a world in which everything has been recalibrated in this way, not only takes effort, it also takes money in the sense that, you know, you've got parents who are working jobs or working nights or just stretch so thin. It's all they can do, but give their kid, you know, an iPad just to kind of make it through. And that's another thing that we have to think about that the dangers of this technology and the seedy underbelly and the dark side of capitalism are going to affect all of us in negative ways, but they're going to affect poor people who don't have like kind of the privilege and the socioeconomic ability to like take their kids to family camp, you know, a device-free family camp. And so I think, you know, that divide also has to be acknowledged and addressed. Not to mention just getting that basic information out to people who might otherwise not have access to it. And because this conversation, people are having everywhere I go, people are having conversations around devices or sugars or alcohol at the moment, people are talking about their consumption, talking about their behaviours. And I think this is one of the first books that I've read that really articulates the process and articulates the mechanism. So once we understand this mechanism of pain and pleasure and the up and downs, like, oh, well, that makes sense. That makes sense that once I have a muffin, give me two seconds and I'll be looking for another one. When I go for that ocean water swim, every time we say, what are we doing? This is so hard. And every time you think, oh, that was so good. It's kind of like exercise. 
not many people finish a walk or a workout going, oh, that was such a waste of my time. Most people finish and think, oh, I'm so glad that I did that. I feel so good. And so it's almost reminding ourselves that it's worth the effort. It's worth moving through. We're going to get the benefits on the other side. And something that's really taken my interest since reading the book is how some of our workplaces are set up for the constant dopamine, for that seeking of pleasure. And I'm thinking about in schools, we had a really interesting observation over the last few years when we went to remote teaching, just how much teachers miss that constant feedback of like, is this going well? Teachers feeling like they have to do the 10 backflips on the screen just to get some attention or to get them to take their videos off just to see a face. And then going back into the classroom, noticing how much we rely. It's almost like a seeking of pleasure, like seeing, is this good? Am I doing well? Are we on task? And then another organisation that I'm working with that's got nothing to do with education, it's in banking here in Australia, one of the major banks, and I'm working with a team that are market traders. And they said, oh, Meg, come and have a look at the market floor. And I walked in and the first thing I thought was this is dopamine on steroids. Right. There is screens, there are literally bells, whistles, flashing things and the news. So how do we manage these environments knowing that we need to be in them for our work? but then recalibrate when we're out of them. It's very difficult because work has become drugified in many different ways. It's now everywhere. It's 24-7. There's no actual stop time for work. So if you do try to stop work, then you get FOMO. You're worried that other people are working and getting ahead and you're not. As one reader said, now that I can see the way that dopamine and the pleasure pain balance is operating, I can't unsee it. It's everywhere. And that's right. It's really true. It's it's really infiltrated every single aspect of our lives so that even sort of healthy and adaptive things like human connection or, you know, trying to get enough to eat for your family or all of that has now become a source of like chasing dopamine. So it's very, very difficult. I think, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, an important place to start to help us recalibrate is to actually dopamine fast for a period of time to reset reward pathways so that we can see with more clarity what the impact of our consumptive behaviors is on our lives, which is very hard to see when you're chasing dopamine because the world is sensory rich but causal poor. And we're very bad at judging how this behavior right now is going to affect me if I do it every day a month from now. It's very hard to see that. There's enormous ambiguity of living organisms in the natural world. Um, but one of the ways to, to, to see what the true cause and effect is, is again, to stop that behavior. And it's really like a life experiment. And then notice the withdrawal, because typically there will be a period of withdrawal as the gremlins slam down to the pain side, then waiting for those gremlins to hop off the pain side for the brain to readapt, to be able to tolerate the boredom, anxiety, irritability, restlessness, until we get to that place where all of a sudden we can feel more settled and calm, more able to connect with real people in real life, more satisfied with modest pleasures, and then make a plan going forward about how to maintain moderation and a healthier relationship with this technology or with other types of drugified behaviors in our lives. I love that idea of becoming really curious about ourselves and developing that self-knowledge of when I'm on this, at this dose and this potency, how does it impact me? 
and taking some time away from the environment. That's why I think holidays can be good because you finally got the time to just relax and then you can think about your workplace and think, oh, wow, that's quite intense, really. When I'm not in it, I realise how intense it is. And some of the people that I was working with in the banking, they said it wasn't until they were working from home because the forced lockdowns and their partners were watching them. And like, is that what you do all day? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're taking these breaks, you know, kind of disrupting our biology and our physiology is very, very instructive. And I think, you know, with work, it's not, not even just like, oh, wow, that was really intense, but like also the ability to say, wow, I really overvalued this activity. Like it seemed much more important than it does now that I have some distance from it. And that's true. Any person with addiction will tell you that, that when they're in their addiction, it just seems like the most important thing in the world to get more of that drug and to consume it and to get get some more after that. And I think that can definitely happen to us in, in work where we're really caught up and we don't see the ways in which we're caught up, but taking a break can give us that time and space to be able to reflect on and say like, like I don't actually care about that, you know, and somehow when I was in that kind of workaholic state, it seemed so important. So when you're working with clients and they're in recovery what are some things that they start to say? Well, I mean, recovery is a really fascinating thing. First of all, people very much begin to recalibrate on what they actually like to do. So for example, a lot of folks will realize that they don't actually like to go to parties and that without being intoxicated, they don't have fun at parties and that in many ways they're sort of natural homebodies or natural introverts. And the way that they really refuel is quiet time alone or with a single friend. So there can be this this real recalibration of like, well, who who am I and what do I really enjoy and what's meaningful? There's also a kind of a a kind of a scary recognition looking back on the addictive behaviors of how far we can deviate from our own moral compass when we're chasing dopamine. And that's of course a hard thing to look at, but a very important thing to look at and to experience an adequate amount of shame around behaviors that are a product of chasing dopamine and to use that shame as a motivation to not return to that kind of consumptive state. And then one of the very fascinating things to me is that a lot of people in recovery say that they've learned they can't tell a lie about anything. There's this idea of radical honesty, like it's not just that they were lying about their drug use, They started lying about everything. Like my favorite quote is a patient who said when he was in his addiction, if he was at Burger King and a friend called him and said, hey, where are you? He would say, oh, I'm at McDonald's. And if he was at McDonald's and his friend called and said, hey, I'm at Burger King. It's like it didn't even have any rhyme or reason, but it was just like the lying habit and how telling the truth then becomes a way to stave off relapse and maintain robust recovery. And I speculate for a whole chapter in the book on how that's operating on a, a possible biological level. Anyway, those are those are some of the things. Oh, I think it's fascinating when you think about that truth-telling and that pro-social shame, how there's some real function to thinking about our behaviours and impact we've had on others. And something that I found fascinating, and it's been in my mind since reading the book, and it just pops up every now and then, is when you shared an observation about your clients And when you haven't seen them for three or six months and they walk in and there's a part of you that like, yeah, they're doing well, I can tell. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, that's really fascinating. And that's something I think is lost on Zoom, but that you really, there's like a kind of a, I don't know, a sort of settledness in their being 
a way in which their skin fits them better, a feeling in the room that you get a kind of energy that you can feel when people are doing well. And you know it immediately when you see them or, you know, you're you're right, let's say 90% of the time, even before you've exchanged a word, even before they've tried you're like, oh yeah, they're, I can tell they're doing well. And that's, that's really, that's not in any textbook that you'll read, but that comes with years of experience. And that's what your book highlights is your years of experience and what we can do, what we can do to manage this time of indulgence and how we can move towards discomfort, how we can reckon with ourselves at times and be our own advocate in this world and create spaces where we can recalibrate, where we can have time to think and ponder and notice the consequences of our actions. And this conversation has just been so powerful and I'd love to wrap it up with an invitation to finish four sentences. Are you willing to do that? Uh, Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am inspired by? My children and my husband and my patients. When life feels hard? I try to slow down and be present as much as possible. An underrated skill is? An underrated skill is listening. And I am looking forward to? I am looking forward to walking El Camino with my family at Christmas time. Fantastic. Anna, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. It's been an honor and a privilege to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Likewise. I'm sure this conversation has given you plenty to think about. Dr. Lemke's book is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, and it's available now in all good bookstores. To learn more about Dr. Lemke's incredible work in the world, visit her website, annalemke.com, where you will find a wonderful range of resources to help you understand dopamine, addiction, and the pleasure-pain balance. A heads up, you will not find Dr. Lemke on social media. If you loved this episode and found it helpful, please share it with anyone in your life that would benefit from listening to the conversation. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing workplace wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. Join my weekly newsletter to get all the details about upcoming events and get access to my regular book giveaways. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 49. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.